Let us pray. Great God and Father, we come before you today and thank you for another day of life and another day to uh, gather together as the family of God and to learn from your word. God, today I pray that you would speak through me, that you would speak through your word, and that you would challenge us and make us more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning we're finishing the book of Jonah in Jonah's chapter 3 and 4. Uh, if you have a pew Bible, it's going to be on page 755 in the pew Bible. And as you're turning there, um, I think when we look at the narrative of Scripture and God's Word, it is important that we think about where we fall in the story. Um, as Christians, we tend to assume that we are people that follow after Jesus and that everyone in the text that follows after Jesus therefore must be us. We're always on team Jesus and doing the right thing and following after him. But if we're honest with ourselves and if I'm honest with myself, most days and most times my experience is somewhere between those who disciples who deserted him at the cross or the crowds that cried crucify him. We walk away. We have a tendency to sin. We have a tendency to fail. We have a tendency to simply forget grace. Grace becomes something that was only for me and not for anyone or everyone else. And uh, before we turn to the text today, um, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable that I want to read to you that frames the story of Jonah very well. And it says this in Luke 18, starting in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or even this tax collector here. I fast twice a week and I give tithes off of all that I get. Our Pharisee thinks he's all that thinks that God's grace was great, but God's grace was just for him because he's forgotten the key thing that we're going to look at today, and it's where would we be without Jesus? Where would we be without Jesus? And he feels better about himself because he simply found someone worse than him to compare himself to in his mind. Verse 12, or verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and said this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Realizes that he's nothing without God. When we come to Jonah chapter 3 and 4, we get into the part of the text that we're less familiar with. We're more familiar with chapters 1 and 2. And if y'all would put the um, map on the screen, uh, the story of Jonah begins with Jonah getting a call to go to Nineveh to go and to tell them to repent and to follow after God, and God will cease destroying their city. And so Jonah goes to Joppa and gets in a boat to go to Tarshish, as far away from the presence of God as he can. As he gets on the boat, the storm comes, and the storm gets really bad, and Jonah ends up being thrown overboard because he was the cause of the storm because God was trying to get his attention. God in his grace comes to Jonah through a storm. God in his grace comes through the fish that picks up Jonah, Jonah spends three days in the belly of the fish, and then Jonah is spit out upon the beach. And that is where we find the story today. Jonah is in a messy situation. Jonah has just come out of a fish, had this traumatic experience. And if there's anyone that understands the value of a second chance and the value of people needing a second chance, it's Jonah here. 
And as we see in chapter 3, starting in verse 1, we're going to see what Jonah goes and does. And we're going to see that Jonah's heart is really like the heart of the Pharisee in that story. Jonah is a person who thinks God's grace is only for him and it can't be extended to others. And so in Jonah chapter 3, we pick up the story. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So similar to the call we had before. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Jonah's got the memo. Jonah's been in the, in the belly of the fish for three days. Jonah's gotten the wake-up call. There's no questioning it now. He's going to go and do what the, Lord, what the Lord tells him to do. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in its breadth. We're not really sure what three days' journey means. Some commentators think it's three days from one end of the city to the other. Others think that three days is simply the amount of time it will take Jonah to go around and to tell the message that God has told him to say. It is a big task that's before Jonah, which leads us to verse 4. Jonah began to go out to the city, going in a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah stands, and Jonah gives this call. Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. A short summation of what God told him to say and he goes and he proclaims this message in this moment you don't really you kind of wonder how people would respond to that message like if someone showed up here in America and said yet 40 days in America would be overthrown we might institutionalize them we might push them off as being crazy we might do something to them but what's interesting here is in this story and in this narrative that God changes the people's hearts, that God brings the people to repentance, that this message of you need to turn from your ways and change comes on open hearts. In verse 5, and the people of Nineveh, they believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, sackcloth from the least of them to the greatest. All the people are impacted by this message. Jonah says very few words. And the people are impacted and the people are changed. Verse 6. Then the word reaches the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. The sackcloth and ashes is a picture of mourning, of repentance. You have the ruler of the country making this big stand and this big statement that he even repents. And it doesn't stop there at verse 7. And he issues a proclamation and publishes it throughout all Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, nor herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his away his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king is impacted by this truth. The king stands up and calls the whole country to repentance, to a point of acknowledging that they have sinned against God and that they're going to turn from their ways and maybe God will grant them great grace. This is a miracle. Think about modern-day America. What if the president decided that we're going to have a time of national prayer and fasting because we'd gotten off track and now as a country we were going to seek God? This would be a revival unlike any other. This would be something that would cause people to stand in awe. This would go down in the history books as a great move of God. This is a miracle happening. 
And guess what all Jonah did was mutter five words that we're going to find out in a minute he didn't even want to say. And then verse 10, when God saw the evil that they, what they had done, how they had turned away from their evil ways, God relented from the disaster he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The people repent and God offers grace. And the reality of this text is we really wish it ended here. The story's been tied up, put a nice bow on it. God comes in his grace and God rescues a people who cry out to them. But the reality is the story doesn't stop here. Because how Jonah should be responding is Jonah should be celebrating and praising God. When you think about prophets with good responses that God brings to their ministries, Jonah has a great one. All the people are repenting. The nation is turning. Jonah should be excited. Jonah should be happy. Jonah should be praising and thanking God for this great work of grace that he's done in the lives of these people. But verse, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It displeased him. He was angry. These people are repenting. I'm frustrated. The reality of Jonah here in this text is it's easy for us to look at this text and look at Jonah and just write him off. Jonah's a drama queen. Jonah hates these people. Jonah is not doing what he should do. Therefore, I'm going to blow him off. But the reality of it is if we're honest in our own hearts, in our own lives, we have Jonah tendencies. We have tendencies to decide that some people are worth more than others, that some people are worth more of our time than other people. We have a tendency also to let our own comforts and our own desires trump what God is calling us to do and who God is calling us to be. It displeased Jonah and he's very angry. Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord, beginning of the drama, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a God who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah didn't run from God because he was afraid of the Ninevites. Jonah didn't run from God because he was inconvenienced. Jonah ran from God because he knew God's character. In the book of Exodus chapter 34, God reveals himself to Moses and he says this in verse 6 and 7. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness keeping the steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. At the heart of the character of God is a God who's gracious. It's a God who responds in grace when we repent. And guess what? Jonah knew what was going to happen. And Jonah just couldn't stomach it. Jonah was... The Pharisee bowed down next to the tax collector at the altar who said, I'm better. And it gets worse. Starting in verse 3, Jonah goes, Therefore, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. I'd rather die than see this happen. My hatred for the Ninevites is so strong that I would rather die than see something good happen to them. And God responded to them in his grace. And the Lord said, verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. Jonah is going out from outside the city and setting up camp. Because unlike us, Jonah doesn't know the last verse of chapter 3. 
that God is going to respond in his grace. So he goes and sits down waiting for everything to happen. He goes and sets up camp. Maybe God will strike them down. Maybe there'll be a fireworks show. Maybe somebody will get nuked. Maybe something awesome's going to happen. That's why I'm going to sit here and wait for this to go down. And he sits there and he makes his spot there. And he sat there in the shade, second part of verse 5, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head and save him from the discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah's out there. It's hot. It's, there's, we're in a time when there's no air conditioning, so I guess a plant is like air conditioning. And so the plant comes and provides the, the relief that Jonah feels like he needs from the heat, and he's excited about the plant. Because guess what? Jonah doesn't care about all the people that he wants to get judged by God. All he cares about is himself. And the heat's coming down on me, and I'm in a place where I feel bad, and now this plant is here, so praise the Lord. Verse 7, but when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and it attacked the plant and it withered. God gave him the plant and then God takes away the plant, which obviously sets Jonah's mood in a great state. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and a sun to beat down on the head of Jonah so he was faint. And he asked that he may die again and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's in a bad situation, Jonah's at his second point of asking God to kill him. Jonah is so inwardly focused that he misses the people around him. He's so inwardly focused that he misses this great thing that God has done that should result in praise and worship and adoration to a God who can save and rescue and believes in second chances. But he would rather die. Verse 10, or verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah misses it. Jonah's so focused on himself, he misses what God has done. And God has done great things through him, despite his negative attitude, despite the fact that he hates these people, despite everything, God has rescued a people. And Jonah's attitude and Jonah's focus is so bad, Jonah's missing it. What we see in this text is we see a God who's gracious. We see a God who redeems. We see a God who gives second chances. And even on Jonah's second chance, he doesn't think anyone else should get one. Which leads to our three application concepts for today. First, we see that God uses people for his purposes despite their attitudes or intentions. God uses people for his purposes despite their attitudes or or intentions. Jonah is a bad prophet. (laughs) Jonah has no heart for the people. Jonah does not care, yet God uses him. God takes the few words that he says and uses it to bring a nation back to himself. God uses people for his purposes despite their attitudes or intentions, which leads to number two. God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over the people coming to repentance, 
God is sovereign over the plant that comes and goes away. God's been sovereign over the storm. God has been the God who's sovereign over all things in this text. Leads to the last point. God's grace is for all who will repent and believe. God's grace is for all who will repent and believe. Jonah didn't buy this truth. He didn't believe that God's grace was for everyone. He didn't believe he'd forgotten who he was before Jesus and where he would be without Christ and without God at work in his life. And so when we flip over to the New Testament, then in the book of Matthew, we see our Jonah call. Our Jonah call is to go and to preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And God promises that he'll be with us always, even till the end of the age. We've been given a Jonah call. We've been given an opportunity to go and to share our faith and to care about those who do not know the great grace and the great love of God. I want to close with this. There's an image that's going to come up on the screen. There's a beach in the sea, not too far from Nineveh, where a horrible thing happened, where there were Coptic Christians who believed in Christ and chose to follow after Jesus, who lost their lives. And on the day that this awful event happened, there's a poem that was written that I want to read to you, and it's called Two Rows by the Sea. Two rows of men walked the shore of the sea on a day when the world's tears would run free. One row of assassins who thought they did right, the other of innocents, true sons of the light. One holding knives and hands held high, the other with hands empty, defenseless, and tied. One row of slits to conceal their glaring dead eyes, the other with living eyes raised to the skies. One row stood steady as pallbearers of death. The other knelt ready, welcoming heaven's breath. One row spewed wretched and contemptible threats. The other spread God-given peace and rest. A question. Who fears the other? A row in orange watching paradise open? Or the row in black with minds evil and broken. The country of Egypt, it's illegal to share your faith. This is a picture of the English version of a track with this poem in it and with scriptures of how you can have new life in Christ. That the Egyptian Bible Society is seeing thousands and thousands of Muslims ask for this track and ask for this message. Because guess what they've seen? They've seen people that believe the truth enough that they're willing to die for it. When you look at religions in the Middle East, you see two main religions. In one religion, people kill for their faith. In the other religion, people willingly give their lives for their faith. And the thing that's causing this to spread, too, is on Al Jazeera, which is the network there that a lot of the broadcasts are on, they sat down to interview the parents of these men, these men who were murdered as martyrs for their faith. Each one of the parents looked into the camera screen and said that God forgave them so they're going to forgive those who killed their sons. It's a hard truth. But it's a truth of the gospel. It's a truth of God's word that those who've been extended great grace cannot help but extend grace to others.
And in order to do that, we can't forget where we would be without Christ. Because without Christ, we would be lost and alone and broken and headed on a path straight for eternal hell, separated from the presence of God. But there's hope. There's new life. And God is working around the world, sharing and spreading his gospel through stories of people who are willing to live in authentic faith. We people who are willing to live in authentic faith, are we people who are willing to go and share Jesus with those who don't need who need him? Even though it may cost us our lives, even though it may cost us our reputations, even though it may cost us our social status. Because being honest, we're in a city where to be Christian may get you elected. When you go overseas, being Christian may cost you your life. We're in a culture where it's hard to live in authentic faith. Are we living a faith that's real? Are we going to those that need Jesus, whether that's next door, whether that's in Egypt? We live in that life because we know where we would be without Jesus, and we know there are people headed to hell without him that we care about. Let's pray. God, give us your heart. God, give us a great desire to run after you and to run towards those who need you. God, remind us where we would be without Jesus, that we would be lost and alone and broken, and that the same gospel that saved us is the gospel that compels us to take the message of hope and the message of deliverance next door and around the world. God, today show us the Nineveh's in our own heart, the places in our own heart where we think that those people have gone too far, those people are too bad, they're too lost, and God send us to them. And be with us now as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.